Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud on Out podcast. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. We have been building on AWS since 2009. Follow along as we build two products uh, for the AWS marketplace, BucketDB and Marbot. This is episode number 79 and we are recording this on July the 20th in 2023. In case you're watching this live on YouTube or LinkedIn, feel free to send us your questions directly in the chat and we will answer them during the show. So in this podcast, we kind of share what we learned while building the products that I mentioned at the beginning. And this time I learned something new about SQS. So let me um, uh, tell you a little bit about this. So SQS is a messaging service on AWS. So you basically get a very simple message queue. And what you can do is you can have um, then workers that work on the jobs in the queue. So this could be easy uh, to instances. It can also be easy as containers or Lambda functions. So in my case, it's easy to instances because this is what our product BucketAV does. So when you upload a file to your S3 bucket, we basically send a message into a queue that says, okay, please scan this file for malware. And then we have EC2 instances that run, uh, pick up those jobs and, and download the files and do the scanning. And what you can do based on the number of messages in the queue is you can scale the number of EC2 instances that are working on the on the on the jobs. And that's what we are doing. And I noticed one thing, or actually a customer noticed it, um, that when there are no messages in the queue and then out of a kind of um, like maybe because it's morning and the first message arrives, it takes very long for the first kind of spike to um, spin up the first EC2 instances. And this even gets more um, of a problem if you uh, scale down to zero EC2 instances. So for example, some of our customers, they decide if there's nothing in the queue, um, and then they just shut down all the workers. So the first message in the queue should then kick off kind of the first instance. But it is very slow for the first message. And the reason for that, what I learned is that in CloudWatch, there's this term of an active and an inactive queue. And the metrics to CloudWatch are only published for active queues. And one of the metrics that we use is the approximate number of messages visible. So that's kind of the, the, the default metric that most people use for scaling. So if the queue gets inactive because for six hours, no activity happened on the queue, um, then this metric is not published anymore. And then the problem is that it takes up to 15 minutes uh, until this queue gets back into active mode when the first message arrives. And this then causes this long delay because we only look at this metric. And if the metric is not uh, any, if there's no uh, like value greater than one, we don't scale up. And then like the message sits there for 15 minutes uh, just because of that. Um, so I looked into this and this is documented. So I found it in documentation, um, but it's still not very satisfying. So what I did then is I realized that there are other metrics that are published uh, more quickly, even if it's an inactive queue that gets activated. And one of those messages is the number of messages sent. And there's also my number of messages received as uh, already deleted, I think it's called. And this is kind of more or less the same well, of same information than the, the number of messages visible. Um, there's some problems with retries, uh, but it, it still helps me to kick off uh, the scanning, uh, sorry, the scaling quicker because the number of messages sent metric is just available within a couple of seconds after I, I published the first message 
after uh, six hours of, of doing nothing with the queue. So basically what we do now is instead of just looking at the approximate number of messages visible, uh, we also take into account using metric math the number of messages sent um, as well as um, number of messages um, um, they, um, deleted uh, to kind of solve this problem uh, a little bit uh, at least. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's better than waiting for 50 minutes. Um, so yeah, that's what I learned. Um, inactive and active queues exist in SQS. <laughs> that that's really crazy, Michael. Because I always thought um, scaling a fleet of EC2 instances is the simplest when having an SQS queue in front of it, <laughs> because there is this uh, metric. And um, as always, if you really dive into the details and use something uh, at a at a high scale and a lot with, with many customers, then you notice. Um, the issues around that so yeah thanks for sharing that i think that's definitely something you have to watch out for when uh, scaling a fleet behind an sqs queue which is a great pattern i would say uh, but be aware of that and maybe use the workaround that you described yeah that's really really interesting michael um so i do have uh, i've learned about um some aspects of aws in the past weeks as well and i want to um yeah, follow up basically on what I have said and written about AppRunner. So AppRunner is kind of a new service to run containers on AWS. And I've been quite excited about the new service because it is really easy to get started to spin up a web service um, based on a container image uh, with the help of AppRunner. It's basically um, just uh, one command in the command line to create everything you need. You don't have to know about load balancers, security groups, scaling configuration, and so on. It's a really easy to use service that encapsulates a lot of the uh, complexity that you have. For example, even if you go with ECS and Fargate, uh, you have still spin up a lot of resources and Apron is much more um, yeah, a simplified uh, solution. Uh, it has some other benefits, for example, the pricing model, because it can scale at least uh, the CPU consumption to zero. Um, and um, over the past few months, AWS has uh, announced new features, and it seems like they are really actively working on AppRunner, which I find uh, kind of cool to have a uh, compute server somewhere in the middle between Fargate and Lambda, I would say. So it's still a running container, but they they pause it, so it's... It's kind of something in between, I'd say. Uh, and so I wanted to um, make use of AppRunner in a more enterprise-y environment for one of our consulting clients. And um, to do that, I wanted to make use of the new features. So at the beginning, AppRunner was just an, a service that spun up your web application as a public-facing web application reachable over the internet. And you didn't even have had the possibility to connect to VPC resources like a database or something at the beginning. But uh, over time, AWS released uh, both uh, network ingress for internal applications from your VPC and VPC uh, egress. So you can also reach, I don't know, the RDS database in your VPC or something like that. Um, and of course, in an enterprise environment, I had to integrate or activate those two integrations, so for ingress and egress traffic to the VPC. Uh, and I've been doing that. And um, I'm, I was running into one issue with the VPC ingress uh, feature of AppRunner. 
because one of the features of AppRunner, and I like that, uh, is that it automatically provisions uh, the TLS for you. So if you configure a custom domain for your AppRunner service, uh, you define the custom domain name, and then um, AppRunner will automatically create a certificate, validate the certificate in the background. But um, to make that happen, <laughs> you have to use a custom, uh, public uh, domain name. So the, the, the DNS server, the DNS, uh, has to basically be able to resolve records for this domain. And in enterprise environment, at least I've known that, uh, know that from, from many of our clients, uh, many, many times they have internal domain names that do not resolve from the outside, from the public name servers, but only resolve uh, on their own uh, domain server systems. And so the issue with, um, VP with AppRunner is you can enable uh, this uh, VPC ingress to make it reachable from your VPC, and it also works over Direct Connect and everything. Um, that's great. But um, you cannot configure a custom domain name for a private domain that is not resolvable from the outside. And that was a bummer. Uh, so basically, this was a showstopper in the scenario that I've been uh, wanted to use AppRunner in. Um, so yeah, this is uh, missing and maybe interesting for someone else who, who runs into that. Basically, the only thing you can do is you can use... So AppRunner creates um, its own domain names with a subdomain, something dot... I think it's dot AppRunner.com or something. Um, this works, and you can have a VPC endpoint for that, and you can reach that. Basically, it just resolves the public um, domain names then, but you cannot use it with custom domains. This is a little uh, frustrating. So this was uh, one limitation I was not aware of. And uh, I've opened the ticket, and there's already a feature request for that, but who knows when this will change. So yeah, currently you have that limitation, so be careful when wanting to use AppRunner in a more complex network or enterprise scenario. And the other thing that someone wrote me over LinkedIn, and I didn't know about that uh, because I... Uh, so it's, it's, it's written down in the documentation, but it's not very prominent. <laughs> As always, the, the important stuff is hidden somewhere. Uh, so there is a, a timeout limit for HTTP requests to AppRunner services. And this is... Uh, it has been uh, raised a couple of times over time, but uh, currently it is... Uh, 120 seconds. So the timeout for each HTTP request coming into the app runner service is two minutes, uh, basically. So that's something you have to verify and you cannot change that. So if you have uh, a workload that requires longer HTTP requests, uh, this is a showstopper as well for app runner. So yeah, so those are two limitations about app runner um, that we need to be aware of and I haven't been uh, so far. Okay, Andreas, that's interesting. Uh, thank, uh, thanks for the update here. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, that we actually, Andreas, released a new product. And this time it's not so much AWS related. Uh, the only kind of reason why we still have it here in the, in the show is that it still runs on AWS. But um, the new product is, is called Attachment AV and it's an antivirus protection for the Atlassian platform. So it works with Confluence and Jira is as is 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 soon available as well. I'm I'm just working on getting it in the marketplace there. So this is our first product on the Atlassian marketplace. So it's not on the AWS marketplace. It builds on the foundations of BarkDB. So this is the um, Amazon S3 uh, antivirus solution that we uh, offer, and um, that is um, AWS focused. 
um, and it basically um, yeah uses the same technology but the files are not coming from S3 this time they are coming from from Confluence or from Chira and what also changed is that we are not selling this through the AWS marketplace but we are selling it through the Atlassian marketplace so we will see how this kind of uh, compares so they over they also have a kind of uh, process kind of approval process that works very similar to what AWS does so they they test your app uh, they have certain guidelines that you should follow to get it through the marketplace approval process and this worked for us it took around a week so this is kind of what they promise and it was kind of uh, without any like big issues um, it, it, they, they found a couple of uh, small uh, things that we fixed and then the, the app was available in, in the marketplace or is available in the marketplace. Um, the way it works from a technical perspective is that um, what we kind of did for BucketAV, um, and this is also a feature that we are going to release soon um, for all our customers, is that we added the capabilities for an API. So you can basically, uh, with the next release of BucketAV, um, create an HTTPS API or like deploy an HTTPS API and you can then send scan jobs to that API. And it is an asynchronous API, so the way it works is you send an HTTPS POST request to it, and this POST request contains, for example, the information about the file you want to scan, and you also include what we call the callback URL. And this URL will be invoked by BucketAV with the scan result. So as soon as the scan finished, uh, finishes, we, in, we, we make an HTTP POST request to your callback URL. And that's how you get the information back. Um, so that's kind of how it works. Um, we are not yet offering a synchronous API where you kind of send a file and get the result back uh, directly because we don't think it's a very good fit. Uh, it had many limitations uh, from if there are large files that, that take an hour to scan or so. You really have to keep the HTTP connection open for an hour. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, but yeah, that's what we have. Um, and the, the capabilities will be included in the next BucketAV release. Um, so that's actually kind of, yeah, our our, our existing product bucket we kind of benefits from that. Uh, and we also kind of open up our possibilities to kind of integrate into other platforms later as well. Um, so that's it. Um, one thing that I, I learned, Andreas, and this is not really technical, but it's more uh, from a developer experience uh, kind of uh, viewpoint. Creating an app on the Atlassian platform is really straightforward. So they call it a fork app. And basically you install a little command line tool on your machine. And then in, for example, development mode, you just type in fork tunnel. And then kind of you see the events that are coming in and they are executed using your source code. When you change something on your laptop, it immediately is deployed. And, and the next time an event comes in and the new code is, is executed. So this is really cool. And it, I was really uh, surprised uh, and, and and in a positive way by this. Um, it's really simple to get started um, and simple to develop something there on their platform. It, it was really a pleasure working with it. And then, for example, took yesterday I just ported everything working with it. And then, for example, took Confluence to Chira, so it took me one day. And this is really, I mean, that's amazing. So you can create uh, a new app uh, if you are familiar with everything in a day. Um, so it took me five days for the first version to get um, um, done, including a website and all the marketing stuff. And this time I, it just took one day. And this is really cool. Um, you don't have to spend much time with with stuff that doesn't matter here. So 
yeah, yeah. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, it sounds really like a great um, developer experience to have everything on your machine, be able to test things quickly. <laughs> so imagine yeah. that would be the same with the AWS <laughs> marketplace and everything. Oh, wow. Okay, Michael. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the results. Um, so how uh, Attachment AV um, performs uh, in the market. Um, so looking forward to, to that. Um, a complete other thing, Michael. So um, I have learned um, uh, uh, something about Terraform. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm currently working uh, on a project where we have a, um, uh, where we use Terraform modules heavily together with TerraGrant. So we use TerraGrant to basically um, uh, combine all those modules that we write. And we also use open source modules, for example, the very popular uh, Terraform AWS VPC uh, module. And um, as you know, uh, with the one thing with Terraform is that you constantly have to update all the versions. So you have to update the Terraform modules that you're using. Uh, you have to update Terraform itself. You have to update the AWS provider that comes with Terraform. And you have to make sure that all those versions work together and um, make sure you stay up to date. Because if you don't do that, I've learned that the hard way, uh, you, you end up in a situation where it's very hard um, yeah, to, to get everything up and running. So I'm constantly making sure that everything is uh, running on the, one of the latest versions. And I learned something that I was not aware about. So when you um, define, um, when you create a Terraform module, or it, it also applies to just to Terraform configuration, and you uh, import or configure an, a provider like the AWS provider, for example, then you specify the provider version that you want to use. So say, uh, I want the HashiCorp AWS provider and I want to have a version uh, greater or equal than, I don't know, 5.0 or 4.0, whatever you prefer. And um, the problem that I have been running into is that, of course, from time to time, um, a new AWS provider gets released, a new major version gets released, and they are breaking changes, which each major release. So I looked it up. There's a large list of uh, properties or, or parts of uh, resources that have been changed uh, that introduce breaking changes, for example, when going from 4 to 5 with the AWS provider. And now the problem is that if you um, import the provider just by saying, I want to have a version larger than, uh, I don't know, for example, 4.0, then when AWS release, or when, when the HashiCorp releases the provider 5.0, uh, it's possible that Terraform will then just pick up the, the new version, uh, which is 5.0, and you get all those breaking changes into your uh, Terraform run. And that's what happened to me. So I was using the Terraform AWS VPC provider. And then because I was um, rerunning Terraform, it switched from 4. something to 5. something. And I got a breaking change because of, I don't know, EC2 Classic was deprecated and they removed it from their AWS provider. And then just my Terraform code was not working anymore. So this was frustrating because then I, first of all, I had to find the reason for that. This was not too simple, actually, <laughs> because it uh, took me a while to figure out what happened here. And um, I think, um, yeah, this is something, uh, if you write Terraform modules especially, or even if you just write Terraform code, I think you should be aware of that. And I think um, the, the one solution that I currently think of that 
um, when you specify the Terraform version, uh, you should not only specify the the lower limit of the version. So let's say I want something greater than 4.0, but you should also say and um, less than, I don't know, the, the next major version, uh, 5.0, for example. So make sure that you not automatically get uh, the new major release uh, because that will um, eventually break uh, your Terraform stuff. So I think that is... Um, an important lesson I learned with Terraform. And then the next thing is I thought, oh, maybe uh, you can use those Terraform log files. So Terraform creates those log files when you run Terraform. I think when you run Terraform in it, it creates the log file. Um, and I thought maybe this includes uh, the AWS provider or modules or something like that, but that's um, that's uh, that's not the case. So it, it, uh, it only includes, I think, the the Terraform version, if I remember correctly, yeah. So I think um, it is important to specify this um, provider version uh, more strictly. Or if someone else has a, another idea how to overcome this issue, I'd be happy to to hear about that. But that's what I uh, learned so far. Yeah, so that's um, a good uh, thing to keep in mind. And I think Andreas has one solution that that also works. Um, and there is... Um, I don't know how this operator is actually called. Um, it, it's using the tilde and greater than sign. Um, and I think this kind of does what you do uh, without, uh, if you say 4.0 um, with the tilde and greater than sign, then ah, it does that's exactly a good what, idea. You, what you ah, have Okay, in mind. yeah. Of course, yeah, that's possible to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Uh, but then, okay, then it's important to use that and maybe I have to to make the maintainer of the Terraform VPC module aware of that, that this is an issue with the current uh, module. Ah, very good. Yeah, Michael. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if there are any other implications that, that, <laughs> that could kind of have any side effects. I don't know. So maybe there's a yeah. reason for how they do it, uh, but that, that could be one option. Yeah. Okay. And I, I think the notation is very... I don't... I don't think that it is used anywhere else. So I think Node.js, the NPM has its own syntax for that, but it's kind of, yeah, I think it's kind of custom for Terraform, but maybe I'm wrong, yeah. So one last thing, Andreas, um, before I, I I dive into that, what I want to kind of, uh, kind of um, spoiler already is that you are working on a new product, right? So that's probably what we talk about in the next show. You are working on a product to lower your GitHub Actions bill, so if you pay a lot of money to GitHub for um, running um, the workers, um, then this could be a good uh, fit for you. So I'm very looking, I'm looking forward f uh, to that. Uh, so I think you learned a lot uh, building that product. Uh, so you can share some uh, details with us. And also I, I worked on something interesting for BucketDB. Um, basically we are adding scan on access uh, capabilities using S3 object lambda functions. And I will share my learnings on that in the last last show as well. Uh, so we have uh, a couple of, of, of exciting things going on at the moment, but I'm, we are kind of running out of time this time. So we just kind of move it into the next show. So Andreas, the last thing that I want to mention is that you have been invited to talk uh, in, in Corey Quinn's podcast uh, called Screaming in the Cloud. So I think most of you know Corey Quinn. So he runs the last week in AWS newsletter for, I don't know for how long, so like a couple of years uh, so he is very persistent in doing that so every week you receive an email from him so that's very cool uh, he summarizes what's going on in the aws 
uh, ecosystem. And you have been invited to talk to him about uh, the new book and a couple of other things. So um, I will share the link uh, to the episode with, with our listeners. And maybe while I do that, you can kind of summarize your conversation with yeah, him. Yeah, Michael, so I think yeah, we mainly talked about um, writing the third edition of AWS in Action. Um, besides that, covered also um, our uh, journey from uh, consulting business to uh, a product um, product development. Um, so if you're interested in a little bit about the, the background story, what we have been working on um, in the past few years uh, and about AWS in action, then this is definitely a great show. All right, then I think that's it. Okay, Michael, I'd say, um, yeah, that's it. We'll be back soon. Subscribe to our newsletter, the podcast or the YouTube channel to make sure you not uh, miss the upcoming show. Um, also, we're looking forward to your feedback. Um, hello at cloudonout.io or find us on LinkedIn, Mastodon or Twitter. Uh, you'll find all the links uh, in the show notes or video description. So thanks a lot for your attention. Bye. Bye.